Tēnā koutou, no mai, haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Tonight, we're live in Botany, East Auckland, where local national delegates are voting for their candidate to replace the now independent Jamie Lee Ross. Will this be the start of former Air New Zealand boss Christopher Luxon's political career? Then, Winston Peters, Deputy Prime Minister, is in court pursuing a privacy case against two national MPs and the Crown over the alleged leak of his superannuation details. The view that because this is Winston Peters, I am somehow different to other New Zealanders is a seriously prejudiced attitude against me. It is wrong. Will Britain's pre-Christmas election break the Brexit impasse? We hear from British High Commissioner Laura Clark on how the parliamentary chaos is affecting her. So I'm not really embarrassed, but, but I think that's because it is democracy playing out. Plus, this month marks 50 years of TV news, and with it, 50 years of political reporting. Remember this? Are you saying that you have never received one dollar from Owen Glenn or any associate of Owen Glenn? Got that? N-O. That's coming up shortly, but first we'll take you straight to Botany, East Auckland, where voting is about to begin, I understand, to select the National Party candidate for next year's election. One News reporter Katie Bradford is standing by. Katie, you've been there for the last couple of hours. What's happening? Kia ora, good evening. Well, I wish I could tell you more about what's going on right now, but we have been up in a uh, secret party meeting room just upstairs here uh, in the Botany electorate, and the speeches have just wrapped up. Delegates here have heard from all five candidates. Uh, they've had ten minutes to speak. There's been a couple of questions, uh, and then uh, they are now into the process of voting. Now, there are 60 delegates who get the chance to vote tonight, but there are also about another 150 people here who are National Party members from Botany and Nation neighbouring electorates who've come along to hear the speeches and, and view proceedings. So there's a lot of interest in, from the National Party in this selection. Five candidates, including Christopher Luxon, probably fair to say that uh, most of the good money is on him. Is there any chance of an upset tonight, Katie? Well, look, there always is, isn't there? As, as I always say, as we all know, never say never in politics. Agnes Lahini, who is, this, who is a current sitting national MP, has to be, I guess, the closest uh, chance to beating him in this race. Uh, she does have profile. She's known in the National Party and so forth. But the other three candidates are also reasonably well-known people within national. They've been to Candidates College. One of them is a local councillor and so forth. So, so you wouldn't want to rule anyone out, really, but you've got to say it's between Chris Luxon and and Agnes Lahini. The interesting thing is, of course, the voting process. Now, there are 60 delegates. Uh, you need 31 if someone's to win off the first round. If that doesn't happen, if, that, if they don't get those 31 votes, it'll then go for a second round with knockouts and so forth. And that's where it could get interesting. Kia ora, Katie. We will stay in touch with you over the next hour or so uh, as we expect to get those results in. Let's bring in former National Party President Michelle Bogue, who's live with us in studio. Kia ora, Michelle. Thanks for yeah. being with us. What are you expecting tonight? Uh, look, it's a really good field. There's five very good candidates there. Uh, and the decision is made locally. There's been a lot of talk about the National Party parachuting in uh, Christopher Luxon. But, uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't lived there in a long time. Uh, no, but that's more than some of the candidates have. Right. Some of them have never lived there. So uh, it, it's a decision made by the locals, mm. entirely by the locals. They've got a strong membership. They're all from Botany. So you can't say he's being parachuted in. The head office doesn't get one vote. Is it likely that Agnes Lohini could upset him tonight, realistically? 
anyone could upset him tonight. It's an interesting uh, ballot process. The winner has to get 50% plus one. Right. So anybody could come through. I've seen selections where there have been two strong candidates and a third one has come through the middle mm. because he's got the second preferences. So, so what happens from, from the stage we're at at the moment? The, the five candidates have each had an opportunity to speak. They're being questioned by the delegates who are there. And then no, what they, they've answered two They've answered the questions. Yes. And now, as I understand it, the voting's taking place. Uh, that will take about 20 minutes. And then those votes will be counted. Mm. The candidates will be sitting back in the body of the hall while they listen to a guest speaker and then they'll wait for the result. All right, so we should have that sometime shortly. Hopefully, as I say, we will keep um, up to date uh, with everything as we get results out of Botany. Our reporter standing by there uh, as those results come through over the next hour or so. It's Melbourne Cup and Guy Fawkes Week, but as far as high stakes and fireworks go, there is expected to be plenty this week at the Auckland High Court. That's where Deputy Prime Minister Winston Peters is taking on the Crown and two National MPs. One of them, of course, National's Deputy Leader over an alleged privacy breach. We wanted to give you a bit of context around this case so we can all consider how it's likely to play out in court. Here's reporter Fina Owen. It's tawdry, it's dirty, it's filthy, and they should not succeed on that. That was 2017, just before the election, when Winston Peters threatened to sue. And they are the national ministers who Peters alleges were complicit in leaking information about an overpayment of a superannuation. Today, two years on, he's in court. I had no knowledge of the overpayment. So the acting Prime Minister is claiming a breach of privacy. Professor Ursula Chair explains that part of the law. So anyone who's claiming has to show, first of all, that um, there's information that's been published that they've got a reasonable expectation of privacy about. And the second part is they've got to show the publication was highly offensive to um, an ordinary reasonable person in their shoes. So Winston Peters is bringing the lawsuit against former National Government Cabinet Ministers Paula Bennett and Anne Tolley, the Ministry of Social Development and two top public servants and claiming damages of $450,000 per defendant. If you add the amount up for each defendant, it, it will go over a million dollars. So in, in the area of privacy in relation to this particular action, um, we haven't had many da successful damages claims at all. So we've had none near this level. And the highest that's actually been awarded was 25,000, and the other two awards were 5,000 and 2,500. But there's always a big difference in any civil claim between what is claimed usually and what amount is actually awarded. Uh, and you hardly ever get what, what you claim for. The New Zealand First Leader is meeting his own legal costs. Under an agreement with Cabinet, taxpayers are paying for the two Queen's Council legal teams representing the two national MPs and civil servants. And any damages awarded to Mr Peters if he wins his case would be met by the taxpayer. Alternatively, the court may find that uh, his privacy has not been invaded and that his claim is not successful, in which case um, then there'll be the issue of who plays the costs of the legal action and um, usually the losing party pays some of the costs so there's a bit of a risk there. I have ex significant experience in New Zealand politics and appreciated the leak of my private dealings with MSD would be deliberately misconstrued. Ministers and, and politicians are the same before the law as anybody else. They have no favours and in fact in some circumstances in some areas of the law 
they find it a bit harder to sue, for example, in defamation because they are public figures and there can be said to be a very strong public interest in what they do. Where we're going with privacy is an interesting question and the question of what public interest means within privacy law and so on isn't well developed in New Zealand, so this case might well help develop that area as well. But right now there's plenty of public interest in this court case where a steady stream of high-profile witnesses will take the stand, including a Deputy Prime Minister on a mission. Fena Owen with that report. The British High Commissioner Laura Clark is with us next, plus the Kiwi academic who says the perilous state of our media threatens the stability of our democracy. And then we look back over 50 years of political reporting. Harman is standing by at the Mangaru Labour Party headquarters. There's no sign of David Lowy here yet. Goodness me, how things have changed. Kia ora Tefano, welcome back. Britain is heading to the polls in the first December election in almost 100 years. Prime Minister Boris Johnson's promising if he's voted back in, he'll get Brexit done. But then so is Labour's Jeremy Corbyn. Dealing with it all on this side of the world as Britain's representative to New Zealand is High Commissioner Laura Clark. She's learning te reo Māori and is a rugby fan. But we started our conversation today by talking politics and the British PM. Do you know Boris Johnson personally? Have you met him? Well, I met him a bit. I worked with him a bit when he was Foreign Secretary. Yeah. Yeah. And what are your impressions of him? So he's, he's a larger-than-life character. He's got real, real um, determination and energy. And, um, and you can see he's really enjoying very, being, in, being in that role. Is he trustworthy? I mean, I, he's, he's our Prime Minister, absolutely. He is, he's got a very clear vision of what he wants to deliver um, and is, is focused on, on delivering Brexit and also has got a very busy domestic agenda as well. Obviously, it's interesting, you know, watching the developments at Westminster over the last couple of weeks. Mm. Do, do you feel, does any part of you as, as the representative here in New Zealand feel at all embarrassed about what appears from the outside to be a, a chaotic yeah. um, democracy at the moment. Yeah. So I'm not really embarrassed, but but I think that's because it is democracy playing out. You know, and what we've got happening is, is Brexit. Brexit really constitutes enormous constitutional mm. change. And it's really contested, you know, across dinner tables, across Parliament, across the public. There are really sort of widely ranged mm. views, very strongly held views. Um, and so, and no one can really particularly agree on exactly what form Brexit should but take. I'm and that's what you see playing out in Parliament. You see that being contested, being debated, um, and there isn't a on-the-shelf version of mm. Brexit, and that's why it's it's taking up such a lot of oxygen. So it is messy, but I think that's because it's important that democracy is able to look at this issue and 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 work through it properly. It's just so messy. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, you know, New Zealanders who have traditionally looked to Britain as a, a stable force mm. uh, see the Prime Minister attempting to shut down Parliament with. The, the tacit support of the monarchy then being overruled by the courts. You have the Tories voting against mm. their own Prime Minister when he wants to hold an election. I mean, th these, yeah. are, these are turgid times. Yeah, no, so certainly our politics used to be more boring um, and, and it's very interesting at the mm. moment, but I, as I say, it's big constitutional change. There's no... And I think the challenge has been the parliamentary mm. arithmetic. So it's both that you've got an enormous amount of constitutional change, but also there's not been a parliamentary majority 
to implement any particular vision of Brexit. Uh, the government hasn't had a majority. So if the government has a majority, it can say this is what Brexit looks like and it goes through. And But there hasn't been that yeah. majority and that's why it's been quite so contested and noisy. And that's really why we've got to this point now of an election. There before. is no guarantee, though, in, with another election that they will have that majority. So in, yeah. in your opinion, does the government need that majority to have the mandate to accept Boris Johnson's plan? I think the key thing is to have a parliamentary majority for to implement a form of Brexit it could be a hung to parliament. find the way forward. Yeah, it could be. It could be, but but that doesn't necessarily preclude find charting a way forward and building consensus. Um, but of mm. course, there are no, never any guarantees with elections, are there? Why did you offer an expression of regret for the killing of nine Turanganui Kiwi Maori by the crew of the Endeavour for the Tuia 250 mm. commemorations? Well. I did that because uh, last year in December, um, representatives of, of those iwi and, 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 and Nati Oni Oni Hapu came to see me and said um, we would like to have this encounter, these tragic encounters acknowledged. We would like to have a process of reconciliation and a stronger relationship going forward. And, and for me, it was really important that we were able to just acknowledge that at the very human level. Mm. Uh, and so that was why um, I went there um, and, and gave that expression of regret. Mm. And for me, that's because we want to build a really close relationship going forward. I have a personal priority to increase the UK's um, engagement and relationship with Te Ao Māori and Māori Dem across mm. New Zealand. And to go forward, you have to be able to look back at the past and acknowledge the pain of the past. And the, you know, those nine deaths in those very first encounters between Cook and his crew in New Zealand Māori or Māori of mm. Aotearoa, that's not how any of us would have wanted those first encounters mm. to have happened. And so was it wrong for those men to be killed? Well, I mean, those are of a different time. I mean, no one would have wanted. No one wanted. No it, one. But, but was it wrong? Well, it's it was not. You know, Banks and Cook both regretted it at the time. Banks wrote in his diary that it was the darkest day of his mm. life, um, and you know, and certainly that pain then of that, those encounters has been passed on from generation to generation, mm. and that's been compounded, I think, by the fact that that story hasn't been sufficiently heard and acknowledged. And so really what I was doing, and it was an engagement really between me representing the UK government and, and the iwi of um, uh, the Turanga iwi, it was about saying, you know, we want to be able to acknowledge that past so that we can build a better relationship going forward. Was it an apology? It was an expression of regret. See, those are curious and, words, yeah. and that's what, that's what I'm hitting at yeah. here. I, so, I, and I'm not too, and I've been asked this before, mm. before, and I'm not too hung up about the exact terminology. But the someone exact must have been, because, because apology is a much simpler word and concept for most people than expression of regret. That, that yeah. is a phrase that yeah, has been yeah. written by it's the way. It's true, but you know, expression of regret was what we landed on, and that was something that we very much co So why that over apology? Uh, that was just what worked. So you know, when you're doing something like this, you've got lots of stakeholders mm. involved. You know, on the iwi side, on our side, and we very much once I got um, once I got this expression of regret mm. signed off by my government in the UK, we then worked very closely with the iwi to co-design it and work out how we did it in a way that achieved our so objectives. Your government wouldn't have gone as far as apology. 
Well, my government agreed to, or my government was very, is very supportive of me having done this expression yeah. of regret, and and that really, and I think when Ewe were asked about it, when Ewe representatives were asked about it, their view was, well, actually, it's what matters is mm. the intent. What matters is the relationship going forward. Like you say, you have prioritised relationship mm. between the UK and Māori. You've mm. announced Hefai Mātauranga, which mm. is a scholarship helping young Māori students yeah. to go to the UK to study Māori taonga kept in UK institutions. Is it acceptable for the British Museum to continue to hold on to Māori human remains despite requests for those remains to be returned to New Zealand? I'd have to check that, but I'm pretty sure that the policy is that Māori human remains are returned. There is, according so, to the British Museum, the, the, yeah. according to their online resources, yeah. there are mokomokai, which are um, preserved, tattooed Māori heads that, that, re that remain part of the British Museum's collection. Ah, oh, that's interesting. So, because I understood that actually remains were re were repatriated some, and some have quite from some museums. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But those okay. remain. I'm not. To I don't Museum. know okay. about that. But yeah. L let me ask: w Would it be appropriate if that is the circumstance? I, will, I mean, I would look into it, but I mean, I would. My understanding is that the policy is that that remains do get returned to New Zealand. Mm. The weekend, I can imagine, um, was a little bit difficult. Would you have anticipated a higher level of sportsmanship from the English rugby players who refused to wear their silver medals? Ah, um, look, I think everyone's an individual. Uh, you know, they take their own approach. Um, I think that it must be incredibly disappointing for them, uh, having done so well in the semi-finals, had such a good tournament. Um, but you know, ultimately, I, I'm not sure that. that necessarily represents them not being good losers. I think, you know, I think you can read too much into these things. British High Commissioner Laura Clark. Just so you know, we have double-checked our facts. According to the British Museum's catalogue, seven Māori heads remain in the museum's collection. This was also confirmed by experts at Te Papa. Let's see what Jenny has planned for us on tonight. Thanks, Jack. Tonight, the highly anticipated Grace Mullane murder trial gets underway. What warning did the judge issue to the jury at the High Court in Auckland? A Dunedin doctor is accused of killing a teenager to save his own career. Jacinda Ardern meets with China's premier and announces a breakthrough in trade talks. Plus, a story that we really think you'll dig. Could res rescuers save an Auckland Beach's latest attraction? Join us for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.30. Kia ora, Jenny. Looking forward to it. Let's take you back now to Botany in East Auckland where National Party delegates are this evening voting on the party's next candidate for the 2020 election. Former New Zealand boss Christopher Luxon is standing against four other nominees. We're waiting on official results from the first round of voting. If those results are inconclusive, they will go to a second round of voting this evening. Uh, National MP Dan Bidwar and Deputy Party Leader Paula Bennett have been speaking to the party faithful gathered there this evening. Let's come back to Michelle Bogue, former National Party President, with us in studio. Michelle, how important is this selection for the National Party? I think it's very important because it will draw a line in the sand in terms of National uh, regaining its ground in botany. Uh, it's been a difficult period, a bit of a vacuum, because Jamie Lee Ross has been the MP mm. and there hasn't been anyone to fight National's Corner. So from tonight, there's someone to fight National's Corner in that electorate.
regardless of, of who is chosen as Nationals candidate, does Jamie Lee Ross stand any chance in next year's election? Not if you look at history. There have been, in my political lifetime, 15 MPs who have either been kicked out or resigned from their party and stood as independents. Not one of them has managed to survive as an independent. Christopher Luxon is many people's favourites heading into tonight's mm -hmm. ballot. What are your impressions of him? I had only met him very recently. You're not working for him? No, I'm not working for him. Yeah. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> but interesting, your uh, makeup lady at TVNZ said to me, oh, the Ian e New Zealand guy, he's a lovely man. He mm. remembered my name, he chatted to me. I think his, his gift is probably that personal connection. Right. OK, we will keep you up to date with the very latest. Our reporters are standing by in Botany as uh, those national delegates continue their election this evening. In the meantime, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Next, a leading journalism academic with a stark warning about the state of our media. We're seeing journalist numbers, you know, cut mm. by a quarter in just a few years. Um, I think we should be concerned that we ourselves will start to see news deserts here. And a gentle meander down political memory lane. Do you remember when Shrek the sheep arrived at the beehive to steal the political agenda of the day? No, my hi to my welcome back to Q&A. In the last couple of minutes, we understand candidates in Botany have left the room to be told the result of the first round of voting as national delegates choose their party's candidate for the next election. No results have been made public yet, but we will bring you those as soon as we have them. It's easy to despair about the future of journalism. In just the last couple of years, numerous journalists have been murdered in Europe. The US president consistently attacks the profession and with Google and Facebook taking the bulk of advertising money, many media organisations are struggling to stay afloat. New Zealand newsrooms, of course, are no exception to those pressures. Dr Mel Bunce is a Kiwi researching and teaching journalism at City University of London. She's written a book about the media in New Zealand called The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World. I asked her why she thinks the industry is in crisis. I think the global media is facing two pretty profound challenges right now. Um, the first is the financial crisis and the financial pressures that it's under as the traditional streams of revenue like advertising and subscriptions. They're really um, evaporating a bit as news moves online. But the second challenge, which is maybe the more um, visible one when you're sitting at home uh, following the news, is this kind of crisis in trust and concerns about kind of fake news mm. and disinformation. Um, I think it's a really acute crisis for journalism because audiences are struggling to know who to trust and a lot of people are turning on journalists a little bit. Um, and those two, those two crises put together, I think, are having a really profound impact on democracies around the world. In that global context, how does New Zealand shape up? In some ways, uh, New Zealand is actually, it, it's f the foundations of the media system are actually even more fragile than many other countries, uh, unfortunately. Um, partly that's because we're small, and so it's hard to make you know, money from journalism with a small population. Uh, another reason is that um, ownership is very concentrated, so just a few companies owning huge portions of the media um, and and those companies themselves being owned by international financial groups that are trying to make short-term profit. So when that stops, they're, they're looking to sell off the media and, and move on. 
Uh, and the final reason I think things are challenging here is that we have historically neglected our funding for public media. So we, we spend a lot less than um, many countries we compare ourselves to. So we spend much less than Australia, the, the UK, Canada, Ireland per capita. We've really mm. neglected public media. It's interesting, though, to consider one of those global issues you mentioned, fake news. And, and maybe for the, for the purpose of this conversation, we can try and define fake news as, as not just being um, errors in, in reporting or anything like that, but being the deliberate production and distribution yeah. of, of, of fake stories yeah. for the explicit purpose of misleading people. Yeah. And, and, and obviously we've seen that in, in other countries and in other contexts, but we haven't seen that in yeah. New Zealand, have we? Correct. Um, it's that particular part of fake news, as, as you clearly define it, which is really helpful because so few people do. Um, that has been uh, much less of an issue in New Zealand. Um, and that's in part because when people really do that um, fabricated content trying to trick people, they're generally doing it either to make money. And actually, it's very hard to make money in New Zealand from journalism, whether it's true or, or false. So we're not kind of a target for that. Um, and the other reason, they tend to do it for political reasons, and we're not as much a target for that either, the kind of disinformation campaigns coming from Russia and some other countries. So there is less of that. Um, the, the area I'm concerned about is kind of the slightly different forms mm. of misinformation and disinformation that we do see plenty of here. For example, um, rumours and misunderstandings around vaccinations. Right. You know, if we look at those those big examples that you identify in the book, though, and in terms of fake news, some of these will seem absurd to our audience. Yeah. The likes of uh, Pizzagate, where yeah. a, a large number of Americans genuinely believe that Hillary Clinton was involved in setting up some sort of a paedophilic ring working out of a pizza yeah, restaurant. It's unbelievable. The yep. Pope uh, endorsing Donald Trump. I mean, these sound absurd to many people. Yep. But at the same time, the reason people believe these things is because trust in our traditional media forms has been eroded to such a point yep. that these are uh -huh. actually believable stories. Exactly. And that's two things. That's elites attacking the media and it's um, also de uh, declining mm. you know, quality and quantity of media. So a lot of the problem in the US, and this is why I'm concerned about New Zealand, a lot of the problem is that those economic pressures on the media, they're leading to giant news deserts in the US where there's no local journalism at all. And in that information vacuum, people don't know who to trust and they do tend to go to more and more polarised sources mm. um, nationally or they tend to find information online and they find it very hard to navigate the ecosystem. And that's why I kind of tie it back to New Zealand because I'm concerned that as the financial pressures are so acute on New Zealand media, especially in the regions and locally where we're seeing newspapers shutting down, we're seeing journalist numbers you know, cut mm. by a quarter in just a few years, um, I think we should be concerned that we ourselves will start to see news deserts here. Newspapers have been on the fritz for ages, though. Why yep. are they so important in a journalism space? Yeah, so they absolutely are, and um, but they actually have historically, and to this day, they still hire more journalists to do that day-to-day -day mm. reporting, verification, fact-checking, um, holding elites to account. They are still the ones that hire the journalists that go to council meetings, to courts. Mm. Um, so just the workforce that newspapers have t traditionally employed is much greater than TV and radio. And that's why um, we're kind of so concerned that as newspapers really start to wind down, what's coming in their place. But, but Mel, isn't it an elitist position in the first place to believe that these traditional media forms are so important in maintaining democracy? Aren't we just seeing 
effectively market forces in action? Mm -hmm. No, I don't think so at all. I think journalism is a public good. And I think for the last 50 years, we've benefited by this very happy mm. coincidence that advertising subsidised this thing that was so important to our democracy. Um, but now that it's not, we need to talk about how to fund it. So I, I, don't, I can just I tell don't you, sorry yeah. to interrupt, I can just tell you, there are, as, as wonderful as it is to work on this yeah. programme, there are many yeah. more people who will be watching a show about strangers yeah. being married yeah. than there will watching this. Yeah, and, and that's it's a really good point to talk about. So I'd say two things to that. The first is um, when you have a scoop or when you find out something really dramatic, actually, or you host a debate that's really important, that does ricochet through social media and it does have crossover impact mm. into other forms of media that people will see, even if they're not watching your show. And the other thing I'd say is that we've got quite clear evidence that journalists make a difference even when people don't watch or read what they do, which sounds counterintuitive, but it's absolutely the case that if you have a journalist in a council meeting, the councillors will act with more integrity. If businesses are concerned that a local news organisation will report on them, we have evidence to show that they will pollute less, they will follow the law more, and they and, and kind of politics and business works mm. more efficiently when people are concerned they are being monitored. That is Mel Bunce. Her book is The Broken Estate, Journalism and Democracy in a Post-Truth World. We are breaking news. We're taking you live now to Botany in East Auckland, where you can see National Party delegates are applauding a candidate whom we understand has just been confirmed as Nationals candidate in next year's election. I'm just waiting for exact confirmation as who it is. There are initial reports that it is Christopher Luxon, the former... CEO of Air New Zealand. As you can see though, our shot at that candidate selection is currently being obscured. This is Christopher Luxon. I can confirm he has been appointed on the first ballot as Nationals candidate for the 2020 election. He's currently addressing the delegates there this evening. We'll bring you some of his comments in a couple of minutes, but this is breaking news, confirming it for you here first. Christopher Luxon, the former CEO of Air New Zealand, has been appointed Nationals candidate. Let's hear what he has to say. As I've said to you many times, I feel like I'm starting in the third form again, right, at a new school and away we go. Uh, but I want to acknowledge um, four amazing people that uh, have been in this process with me. Uh, we've been on this journey together. Um, Agnes is incredible. She's done an amazing job for us already in Parliament and I'm looking forward to just really getting to partner up with you and learn a lot from you over the coming um, weeks and months together. We've got um, Troy and Katrina and Jake, and you have to say, uh, the botany electorate, outstanding We will bring you more of Christopher Luxon's comments in a few minutes, but I want to bring in former National Party President Michelle Bogue. Michelle, you have been involved in campaigning for the National Party for a long time now. Tell us what this selection means. I think what it does is it confirms that National is an attractive alternative in terms of government because you've got someone who's highly uh, respected, a very good quality candidate, and he wants to stand up and say, I want to be in the National Party. What are his values? What does he care about? Uh, he has Christian values. He's made no secret of that. But you can just tell from the few words we saw there, I think his particular skill is engaging with people, bringing them on board. And that seems to have been 
the sort of behaviour he exhibited at Air New Zealand, his leadership style. I understand that when he went round to see the delegates, he was spending an average of an hour and a quarter with each delegate. Now that's a long time. That meant that he was willing to spend that time and they were willing to give him that time. They wanted to spend time with him. How will National Party leader Simon Bridges feel about this? Uh, I think he'll be delighted because I think that uh, people will either think, great, we want, uh, we want the National Party there because we've got good quality candidates like will this. Will he feel threatened? Uh, perhaps a little bit because there'll be some people who don't understand the process, who will think Christopher Luxon's going to be in Parliament tomorrow and could challenge Simon Bridges tomorrow. People have said that to me. Oh, well, you know, when's he going to be the leader? Well, there's a long, long mm. way to go before he even contemplates that. He's got to get into Parliament, he's got to do his apprenticeship, you know, he's got to learn the ropes. So I think Simon Bridges is safe in terms of leadership, but it does represent... Uh, great hope for the National Party in terms of future potential in the caucus. All right. Thanks for your insights, Michelle. We're going to leave things in botany uh, for the time being. We will go back there to our reporter, Katie Bradford, in a few minutes to see if she has any insights as to how the voting went down. You heard there Christopher Luxon in his speech to the National Party delegates who have assembled this evening uh, thanking uh, the, the candidate who is likely to be his toughest opposition, Agnes Lawheny, who was, of course, uh, a br briefly an MP uh, leading up to the last election. But We'll bring you more of Christopher Luxon's comments and try and get a word with the man himself in the next few minutes. As well as that, we're going to look back at politics to a scandal embroiling, Jenny, <laughs> embroiling Prime Minister Jenny Shipley. You could sit at Jim Anderton's desk and look straight into Jenny Shipley's office. You could see Shipley go like this. And everybody was basically having a meltdown. Kia ora e te welcome back. This month marks the 50th anniversary of TV news in Aotearoa. And though the medium has itself been subject to significant change, the advent of TV has had an enormous impact on our political landscape. To mark the anniversary, we spoke with five of TVNZ's former political editors, or the equivalent title. Together, Richard Harmon, Linda Clark, Mark Sainsbury, Guy Nespina and Corin Dan covered a period from Muldoon to the last election. We asked each of them to recall a standout TV moment from their time in the gallery. Richard Harmon is standing by at the Mungaroo Labour Party headquarters. There's no sign of David Lowy here yet, but... Richard Harmon was TBNZ's chief political correspondent during one of the most tumultuous periods of New Zealand political history. Is your supporter there right? Are you Prime Minister, Mr Logie? It appears so. If you can win Hawke's Bay, you can win just about everything. And after the 1984 election, he found himself at the centre of a constitutional crisis. Two days after the election of the Longy government, the defeat of Muldoon, the country faced a huge financial crisis. There was a run on the dollar. Hundreds of millions of dollars were leaving the country. There was a media blackout on everything that was going on. So we had a new government, they weren't doing any interviews, any press conferences or anything. We went out to Vogel House and we got an interview with Sir Robert Muldoon in which he announced that he would not devalue, even though the Reserve Bank had asked him to do that, Longy had asked him to do it and he said that he was going to teach Mr Longy how to be a Prime Minister. My advice was, him, was to him that we should jointly make a statement that 
the New Zealand dollar will not be devalued. The interview and Muldoon's comments sparked crisis meetings in Wellington. Later in the evening, after Eyewitness News had gone to air, we found a room full of ministers who were meeting and working out how to, to roll Muldoon, even though he'd lost the election, because he was still the Prime Minister. The next morning, common sense prevailed. Jim McClay met with Muldoon, he agreed to devalue, and that was the beginning of Rogernomics. All that and at least one announcement of an asset sell-off. Linda Clark also remembers a time when politicians and journalists had a different relationship to today. TVNZ got itself into a whole heap of trouble um, because it hired John Hawkesby to replace Richard Long as a newsreader. So not a political story, thus, uh, a kind of in-the-family story. Mike Hosking and I at this time were fronting a programme together called Crossfire terrible program, didn't last long, which was blessed. Um, but in one of the interviews on that show, we interviewed the Prime Minister, who was Jenny Shipley. And in the course of that interview, Jenny Shipley said that he had got a million dollar payout. Well, you say what's tight about it. John Hawkesby got a million dollars as he walked away from Television One. And then as we walked out into the green room at the end of the show, uh, she said words to the effect that she'd made it up. Or uh, I can't remember the exact words, but that was the, the essence of what we thought she'd said. So the next day it was a huge story. You remember saying I made it I up. don't intend to comment anymore. And by the time we got to the six o'clock bulletin, um, we decided, as, a, as the, the management team inside One News in those days, we decided that I would say on air in the live cross that that was not true. Before I went and did that, we had, it was referred right up, you know, endlessly. Um, did it, said it, um, and then the shit really hit the fan. And at about seven o'clock that night, um, I got a call from Jim Anderson's office, God bless him, um, to say, you've got to come up to our offices and bring your camera. So we raced up in those days, much more innocent times. So no curtaining or, or screens or anything on the beehive windows. You could sit at Jim Anderson's de desk and look straight into Jenny Shipley's office. You could see Shipley going like this. <laughs> and Everybody was basically having a meltdown in her office. Wyatt Creech was there and a whole bunch of advisors. So, of course, what could you do? What would a good journalist do? So we filmed it, we got the footage, and then we put it to air. Um, and the next day, the Dominion and other papers ran this mess. And Shipley never spoke to me again for, I think, about a decade. <laughs> it was priceless, actually. <laughs> do you ever bump into her on Lambton Key now? <laughs> I saw her about 10 years later, or it might have even been longer. Actually, time flies. It could be 20 years later. And as she was walking towards me, I was thinking, oh, God, what am I going to say? Because we literally hadn't said a word to each other since. She was absolutely pleasant and very professional. And, I mean, what does she care now? She's gone on to many, many and varied things. Later that same year, Labour formed a coalition government and Helen Clark became Prime Minister. When you look at that period from 1999, on, it's characterised by one person, that's Helen Clark. She was the one who held that together. Don't forget the unwieldy coalition, you know, the alliance, which was Jim Anderson and the new Labour, coupled up with Mana Motahaki and the Greens. Well, the Greens eventually split, the whole thing fell apart, Jim Anderson had to form a new party. This was fractious politics. Helen Clark was the one who held it together. And Mark Sainsbury remembers one occasion which typified Helen Clark's forceful leadership. I remember on this very forecourt here, there was the Hickory, 
and don't forget this involved the Harawera's and all these various other people that, that you know, uh, uh, all to do with land and the, and the seabed and foreshore, all these arguments was coming through. So was Shrek the sheep. Helen Clark as Prime Minister came out and met Shrek the sheep but would not meet the hikoi. In fact, she labelled them as haters and wreckers. And that set the template for that debate right through the term. Guy on Espiner remembers a scandal with a politician whom all of the editors have tussled with. Well, it's always interesting battling Winston, isn't it? And we had quite a few of those moments. But you might remember that there was a donation scandal involving New Zealand First and a suggestion that um, the party got money from the billionaire Owen Glenn. And there were questions about whether he'd got this money and there was a particular press conference where the tension had been rising about this. And so I put the question to Winston Peters, did you or your party receive even one cent, one dollar from Owen Glenn? And he reaches under the table and he pulls up the sign, no. Got that? N-O. And he flings it across the table to me at the end of the press conference. Uh, I'll give you a present. And it ended up in my lap. And I wandered off with the, with the no sign, which had become quite a tohu, quite a symbol of the statement, because not only had he denied it, he denied it in, you know, massive um, black letters. And so I used it on the, on the live cross that night. I remember Wendy Petrie um, put the question to me, so Guyan, is this the end of the, um, this, is this the end of the scandal? Well... <laughs> In a word, <laughs> Jessica Much, who went on to become political editor of TVNZ as well, uh, got the sign framed for me for, I think it was my birthday, and it hung in our office in the press gallery at TVNZ for quite some time. And when the Christchurch earthquakes happened, we decided to auction it off, and we sold it for ten and a half thousand dollars. Wasn't Owen Glenn, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he flicked it no. on. Maybe he flicked it on and gave the money to New Zealand first. My moment would probably be uh, the 2017 election. Corin Dan was the political editor two years ago. The billboards were already up. Andrew Little was the face of Labour. Uh, Jacinda Ardern at that point was the deputy. And the polling had been bad for Labour. That was no, no secret. And I got a poll through on a weekend that had Labour at 24%, which was about as bad as they'd ever been. In this instance, I rang the press people on the Saturday, but ahead of my poll on the Sunday night, and I said, oh, you know, I need to talk to Andrew Little. And they said, oh, well, he could probably come in. He's in Auckland. I was like, oh, something's up here. You know, there's something going on here. So I sort of wrangled a few cameras and I made sure it was a big sort of showpiece, sit-down interview with because I knew this was a really great opportunity. And sure enough, a couple of questions in, he acknowledged to me that he had considered resigning and he'd, he'd raised it with his colleagues. Yeah, again, look, I'd be lying to you if I said that I hadn't thought about that. And that was one of those just light bulb moments in the middle of an interview where you go, Oh boy, every, every, you could just see it, how it's all going to pan out. Everything is going to change now. And sure enough, within two days, uh, he was gone as leader and we saw Jacinda Ardern come in and uh, obviously, you know, the rest is history. Some real gems from the archive there. If you're just joining us on Q&A this evening, in the last few minutes, former Air New Zealand CEO Christopher Luxon has been appointed as Nationals candidate for next year's election in Botany. He beat out current List MP Agnes Lohini and three other candidates. And we will have more from Botany for you after the break.
Tēnā koutou, welcome back. It's all go tonight. Yes, in the last few minutes, former New Zealand boss Christopher Luxon has been selected as the national candidate for botany in East Auckland for next year's election. The seat, of course, is currently held by independent Jamie Lee Ross. One News reporter Katie Bradford is there. Katie, just before the ad break, we saw the reaction from delegates in the room. They seemed pretty excited that Christopher Luxon had been appointed their candidate. How did he take the news? Well, he's obviously very pleased. He said he's tremendously excited uh, and aware of the privilege that he now has to try and win this seat back for National. It is, of course, a safe national seat. But he talked about unity in there. He talked about unifying this electorate, unifying the party, as did other candidates tonight. And that really is the big thing here in Botany, after everything they've had over the past year with Jamie Lee Ross, wanting to, to get part, back to being a united Botany National Party. Uh, a couple of people here have spoken to me about the fact that they're glad he was voted in on that first round of voting. Mm. Uh, it shows that he was the preferred candidate. It didn't have to be broken down. Uh, so from now on, the big job for Christopher Luxon is, of course, learn how to be a politician and learn how to win a seat. Thank you so much, Katie. Really appreciate your time this evening. That is Q&A for this week. Thanks to former National Party President Michelle Bogue for her analysis this evening. Thank you for watching. And now mihi kia koutou inga karere. Thanks for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Uh, tonight is up next. They're going to have plenty more coverage from the Botany candidate election. Hey, Tiara Wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9.30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.